Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greatest challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, is in Russia this week for direct talks with Vladimir Putin, the first ever. Right now, there is a window of opportunity for Russia, and uh, let's see what these negotiations will bring us. Mikhail Korostikov, the journalist who broke the news of the meeting, tells us what the two leaders want from the summit. And later, regular Moscow Times columnist Mark Galliotti is in town. We'll be picking his brains on life after the Mueller report, the elections in Ukraine, and what it's like teaching at Russia's most elite university. Actually, Russia is not Mordor. It is not uniquely evil, as it is often portrayed in the outside world. Of course, I talk about Russian organized crime in the context of the course, just as I talk about Japanese and Chinese and American and Italian and so forth. First up, Kim Jong-un arrived in Vladivostok on Wednesday for a three-day visit in an armored train. He was greeted with flowers and bread and salt. The visit comes just two months after talks on sanctions relief and denuclearization between Mr. Kim and U.S. President Donald Trump in Vietnam fell through. Will the leader of North Korea fare better with Putin? Joining us in the line is Mikhail Korostikov, the journalist at Conversant who broke the news of the meeting. Mikhail, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, thank you So the Kremlin, inviting it's, it's our pleasure. The Kremlin has been trying to sit down with Kim now for months. Why, can you tell us, is this summit happening now? What's the timing all about? Well, actually, it's also puzzling for me. It's one of the questions that I haven't cracked yet, but uh, I can tell you that the summit was uh, preparing for quite a long time. I heard about that uh, a year ago or even two years ago that it's going to happen very, very soon. But it wasn't happening and people were very actively uh, persuading me that it is going to happen the next week, the next month, but it didn't. So uh, finally it came and I think that there are two main reasons for that. First one is that the uh, talks in Hanoi between Donald Trump and Kim Kim Jong-un failed. Right, this is two months ago in, in Vietnam. And uh, then uh, Kim wants to create an impression that he's not against denuclearization uh, as a whole, but he is. Uh, but he stands for the denuclearization as Russia and China sees it. And of course, he went to China several times, and now he finally decided to go to Russia to show the Americans that he uh, hasn't been stuck in the corner. He's very like popular all over the world. He can find new friends, even if uh, he won't be able to find a common ground with the Americans. Right. So this is uh, this is the main reason I think. And the second reason is that Putin is actually flying to Vladivostok uh, to to go to Beijing from there, and uh, it is known that he didn't want to spend time uh, waiting for Kim Jong-un in Moscow because uh, due to some unknown reasons, uh, Kim wants to travel uh, through Russia only by train 
Okay. And when his father traveled in 2000, uh, 2002 and 2009, if I'm not mistaken, then it was a big problem. It was a whole disaster because it uh, drags uh, too much resource. Right. Okay, so l- let's zoom out for a moment here. The international community has framed Russia as a kind of tacit ally of, of North Korea. I mean, Russia's been accused of supplying North Korea with oil against UN sanctions and also hiring North Korean laborers against these the same UN sanctions. Does Russia see itself as an ally of North Korea? Well, first of all, when you're speaking about international community, you must uh, also say that here you mean that it's the United States and some of their allies in Europe, in uh, South Korea and in Japan. It's Precisely. Less, less, less than 20% of the humanity. <laughs> and the rest of the humanity sees the situation more or less objectively. And the objective truth is that Russia is not an ally of North Korea. And there is not a single fact proving that. There is a committee, a UN committee called Committee 1718, because it was established by the resolution of the UN Security Council 1718 that has uh, it is the only committee that has a uh, right to blame some country for uh, helping North Korea and for violating the sanctions this committee which is comprised of uh, if I'm not mistaken 12 experts uh, it uh, has never uh, accused Russia of any serious violation of sanctions all violations that were proposed uh, were proposed by either by non-governmental organizations like South Korea in Assan Institute for Policy Studies or by the United States on their own. And uh, in this committee there are deep battles, not only between the United States and uh, Russia but uh, among other participants because the United States, they say that for example in 2018 there was more than 80 cases of uh, illegal transmit of oil in the open sea from ship to ship hmm. but they gave proof only for four. Right. And uh, the, re- the remaining 76, they just remain absolutely non- uh, uh, there is no proof for them. So basically, Russia's position here is the following. We do not want uh, North Korea to collapse, first and foremost, because the, it will create a wave of refugees that will, most of them will come to China, but meaningful part of them will come to Russia and it will destabilize Russia's Far East, which is definitely not in the best shape, uh, even without these North Korean refugees. Uh, secondly, Russia wants uh, North Korea to remain intact uh, as a political entity. Uh, Russia's leadership, of course, supports reforms there uh, but uh, the main thing it uh, cares about uh, is that North Korea remains as a buffer between uh, between Russia and China on the one side and American forces in South Korea on the other side. So uh, Russia is generally uh, interested in uh, maintaining status quo. Right. And uh, concerning the workers that you mentioned, this is really a very huge problem. And the problem is not that Russia is violating the sanctions and hiring these workers. Uh, the problem is that workers are actually leaving. If you go to the Far East, you will see how uh, how big a problems it creates because these workers uh, they were a very meaningful part of the workforce. As you know, uh, Russia's Far East is experiencing a very big uh, shortage of workforce, and uh, North Koreans were perfect in this regard. They were very hardworking. They right. have very good discipline. They they didn't ask uh, for any additional benefits. Their pay is very moderate, so they were a true salvation for the Far Eastern economy. But bottom line, Russia doesn't see itself as an ally of North Korea. Uh, no, it doesn't see yeah. itself as an ally of North Korea. 
Korea, and uh, I, I can't uh, see any proof of that. Russia right. voted for sanctions against North Korea. Russia is not violating these sanctions, and Russia is pretty staunchly prevents any smuggling from Russia to North Korea. Right. And there hasn't been any major cases when uh, Russia's entities were caught in smuggling anything to North Korea. Okay, so when it comes to Russia's foreign policy in other parts of the world, uh, including the Middle East, uh, analysts say that, that Russia's goal is really to insert itself into a conflict so that it becomes a necessary part of the solution. It wants a seat at the table. Is that what's happening here, or does Russia have real, sort of legitimate, separate security concerns other than just being one of the big boys at the table? Well, actually, of course, the desire to be one of the big boys at the table is one of the major reasons for Russia's involvement in this particular case. Uh, but there are many other reasons. Uh, first one, as I told you, is that Russia doesn't want North Korea to collapse, and it doesn't want war to happen there because it will create a very big disturbance in the region. It will create a lot of problems for Russia itself. Secondly, uh, it wants uh, North Korea to remain intact as the barrier against the American forces in South Korea and Japan. And uh, thirdly, of course, Russia would be very, very happy to use North Korea and the situation in North Korea as one of the bargaining chips in its negotiations with the United States. Mm. Because uh, because uh, this North Korean track is one of the very few where cooperation we, between Russia and the United States remains normal, as if nothing happened in 2014. Sure. And we should just mention that 2014, of course, is the annexation of, of Crimea. Let's move on to some, well, some shameless speculation for a moment or two. Can Russia really have a meaningful impact on how the issue of North Korea plays out on the international stage? Does it have any clout, any leverage? What can Russia really hope to achieve here? Uh, well, actually, I'm not sure that Russia can be a major player here because uh, unfortunately the amount the number of leverages it has is uh, pretty small and uh, pretty unimportant comparing to what uh, South Korea has or China has because Russia's trade with North Korea is almost non-existent. Last year it dropped uh, 56% to $34 million dollars. So it's less than one factory produces, basically. And that's why we uh, we cannot say that like the, this trade or stop of this trade or increase in this trade can be a meaningful leverage here. We don't have any meaningful smuggling, and that's why we cannot use this smuggling leverage as China does. Mm. Uh, we don't have any political uh, we don't have any political leverage because we don't have we don't have a strong pro-Russian faction in the North Korea like Chinese have. Right. That's why all the things that we can do are pretty marginal. I would say, uh, first of all, we have a reputation of pretty neutral ally. I mean, on the one hand, we're definitely not uh, an American ally, but on the other hand, we introduce sanctions. So we are regarded as, and we don't have our own interests, uh, I mean, long-term interests within North Korea like China does. Sure. That's why we are perceived as a more or less neutral power by all players, by China, by South Korea, by the United States, and by North Korea itself. Right. It is an asset that, to my mind, we should capitalize on. I think we're trying to capitalize on it. Uh, but until recently, North Korea thought that it can solve uh, this denuclearization issue for its own benefit within the framework of four, North Korea, South Korea, China, and the United States. And when the Hanoi negotiations collapsed, Kim Jong-un apparently decided that he needs to involve some new players into this game. 
uh, Russia is the first one. Uh, the only one who is left out of this scheme uh, from the original six-party talks is, of course, Japan. But I'm not sure uh, that Kim uh, will be eager to meet with the Japanese prime minister, sure. whom, whom he openly detests. So mm. I think uh, the, right now there is a window of opportunity for Russia. And uh, let's see what these negotiations will bring us. I, I think the situation may change for the better for Russia. We'll be watching this space. Mikhail, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. No problem. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Mark Galliotti doesn't really require an introduction, but just for the heck of it, he's a regular columnist at the Moscow Times, the author of two new books, We Need to Talk About Putin and Vori, Russia's Super Mafia. And he's currently a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Mark, thank you very much for finding the time to join us in the studio today. It's my very great pleasure. So you're here teaching a course on transnational crime at MGMU. Um, how are the students taking to the material? Are you sensing any clash of mindsets? Well, no. Um, I mean, who knows? This particular cohort, this is, I've only had one class teaching them. But it, I mean, this is my fifth year uh, of teaching this, this course at MGMU. Um, and I don't think so. I mean, hey, look, it's transnational crime that is inherently and gorily cool. Um, but also, I mean, in, in many ways, it actually speaks to a much more important question, which is the fact of actually Russia is not Mordor. It is not uniquely evil, as it is often portrayed in the outside world. Of course, I talk about Russian organized crime in the context of the course, just as I talk about Japanese and Chinese and American and Italian and so forth. Um, the key element of the course, well, really, there's two. One is to basically look at how it fits into essentially the global economy, um, global flows of drugs, money, people, services, etc. But secondly, it is to say that, in fact, it is it is legitimate society that shapes its own underworlds. And in a way, the, the distinctive forms of, of organised crime that emerges actually is the dark shadow of organised society. Hmm. So in a way, one can say, well, this is why Russian crime is distinctive for these reasons, just as one can say this is why American crime is distinctive for these reasons. So I think, I mean, it, it, it speaks to, I think, a quite an important narrative, which is not to whitewash what's going on in Russia, but to say, look, this is not actually so dissimilar from elsewhere. Mm. Let's look at the wider processes at work. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that a little bit later. Um, these these uh, these sort of young Russians that you were encountering, um, this is, you're teaching at Russia's well, probably its most prestigious university. These are likely some of the, sort of the future leaders of the country. Are you sensing any... Uh, any characteristics about them that are unique or differentiate them from the current leadership? Well, I mean, obviously the current leadership is in many ways a Soviet generation, and this is very much a post-Soviet generation. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I should actually lead off by saying that my class is a mix of Russian students and uh, foreign uh, exchange students and students who are teaching, being taught at Mgimar. But no, I mean, if, if one looks at the Russians, I mean, the thing that strikes me is this is absolutely a, you know, a perfect example of this hyper-cosmopolitan new Russian. Hmm. Um, they, they tend to have good English. They have travelled widely in the main. Um, they understand the world. They're interested in the world. But at the same time, absolutely, the, you know, Mgimar is, after all, it's the foreign ministry's university. Um, the, you know, the, the, the main direction in which people are going is precisely into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, it's quite interesting. You compare it to a class, for example, at something like Higher School of Economics, and you say, well, you know, what are your career aspirations? And you will get people who want to be in business and journalists and maybe think about setting up an NGO or whatever. Hmm. Um, my experience asking the same question of the Russian students at Mgimo is essentially they are all either going for the foreign ministry or sometimes other ministries or what we could really think of as pseudo-ministries like Gazprom. Hmm. 
Um, so you know, very much this is exactly the the you know the equivalent of the finishing school for the, for the Russian elite. Um, and and what interests me is precisely that at the same time as they can absolutely be be patriotic and they're on message, mm-hmm. um, particularly when they are, shall I say, officially you know formally challenged on that point. Uh, it was quite interesting teaching the course during, for example, the annexation of Crimea. Quite. Um, when I actually asked the question, okay, so what do we think of this? You know, the warm-up element at the start of the class, and and one Russian student sort of basically delivered this ringing the cloud, this ringing declaration about historic wrongs righted, and you could see that every Russian in that room understood that a, a line had been drawn, and no one was going to step beyond that line. I see. So on the one hand, look, they they know how to perform, but on the other hand, I mean, they are. Subtle and sophisticated in their perspective. These, these are not just kind of intellectually thuggish, um, you know, nashy generation. Certainly. So, I mean, I, I think that this is it. I mean, obviously, look, what are they going to say to me? I'm, I'm a sort of a foreigner, a professor, and flitting very briefly through their lives. Mm. But the thing that strikes me is exactly that, that they are at once kind of a loyal next generation elite. But on the other hand, we shouldn't assume that they've been brainwashed. I want to change uh, tack here and ask you a couple of questions about uh, stories that are that have been dominating the news cycle here. First of all, the, the Mueller report. It didn't come with the sizzling evidence of collusion that, that some expected. What do you what do you see next for the relationship between uh, between Russia and the United States in life post the Mueller report? Well, I mean, of course, the Mueller report wasn't going to pr- provide that evidence. I mean, the the amount of straws desperately being grasped by people who are hoping that in some way someone else would deal with the problem called Trump for them. Um, and I think it, it showed what really we, we knew, which is that on the one hand, yes, you have certain sort of state actions such as the GRU hacking and the Internet Research Agency trolling. But the overwhelming majority of these contacts by people, quote unquote, close to the Kremlin, whatever that means. I mean, you know, if I if I had an ice cream in Red Square, that probably makes me close to the Kremlin. Um, <laughs> You know, actually, it was much more about individual initiative and the, the, the inevitable and, frankly, perfectly le- legitimate attempts to draw lines into um, a, a new administration. So now that it, it, it has come out, um, in some ways, it has become. You know, it, it is one of these things that everyone will now busy recast and reinvent to say what they want. Hmm. We have people saying, actually, this shows how spot on the media coverage was, which, in my opinion, the American media coverage was anything but. Um, we have people who are actually saying, well, you know, all. All this density of connections, you know, am- amounts to collusion and so mm. forth. But really, for me, I mean, there's there's ample evidence of the fact that this is an administration of venal imbeciles, um, you know, who, who don't seem to see the, bo- the dividing lines between propriety and impropriety, between corruption um, and you know, appropriate business contacts. This is all essentially something that the Americans are going to have to deal with themselves, in a way, without really referencing the Russians. Um, so how does this actually affect international relations? Well, the answer is I don't think it does. I mean, I think hmm. what really we have seen is that whereas obviously the grand geopolitical picture you know, conditions what's going on, this is in many ways um, a political contest that has been driven by wholly external factors. I mean, if one goes back to what is really the genesis of the real sort of hotting up of this current um, crisis, it was Crimea. Well, that was actually much less to do with geopolitics as it was just emotion and politics at home within Russia or mm. within a sort of square kilometre around the Kremlin or Adinsova. Um And likewise, I mean, actually what we see in America is really three-party politics has come to America. We have the Republicans, we have the Democrats, and we have Trump. Right. And in a way, it's all about how this, how this 
very unstable, unholy trinity actually manages its relationships. You know, will the Republicans stick with, with Trump? Um, will the Democrats continue to use Russia as an attempt to tarnish Trump and the Republicans as, as unpatriotic? And a lot of that is that, you know, if you look at the sanctions regime, the constantly um, ratcheting up sanctions regime, this really has nothing to do with what's going on in geopolitics, everything to do with Congress wanting to make a strong point about how it's tough on, on, on Russia. So, very long answer. The short answer is, I don't actually think it's going to have any real impact. The question will really become... How do you square the fact that on the one hand you have Trump with his strange adulation of Putin, in common with every other dictator he's met, um, and at the same time you actually have US policy towards Russia being tougher than it's been at any time since 1991? Right. Um, and, and what can Russia do about that? And the answer is I think neither side can or will do anything about it. From the Russians' point of view, I think they don't believe there is any scope for movement at the moment short of capitulation to everything the West wants. And likewise, I think the West is currently locked in a position in which it feels that any kind of movement, any kind of positive step will actually essentially sort of empower Putin and, and, and lead to a worsening of the situation. So I think it would be lovely to be able to offer something more interesting, something more positive, something more exciting. But essentially, it's business as usual. What we saw yesterday is essentially what we're going to see tomorrow. The 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 theory that I hear time and again speaking to guests in the podcast uh, and 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 sort of in in analysis in opinion pieces is that for the, for there to be a real change uh, in the relationship between the United States and Russia, a thaw, if you will, um, basically Putin has to go. It, 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 that that can only happen at a time when Putin is no longer in power. In short, do you kind of do, do does that hold true for you? Pretty much. I mean, I think we could well see tactical shifts. I mean, well, and, and we have. I mean, it is clear that, that the Kremlin looks at what happens and looks at the responses and, and tailors its next move based on how successful it felt its last move was. But in, in fundamental terms, I find it very hard to believe that there can be any change. And I think one of the key points about this, and, and I, I don't want to kind of blame this 100% on Russia, there have been absolutely Western missteps. But I think there is this fundamental point is when we look at the current Kremlin administration, it is this conviction that essentially the West it wants to do Russia down, that the West is a threat. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that the, the rhetoric of war is, is deployed time and time again. And very much I think this is it. I think the current Russian government is really on a wartime footing. And I think that speaks to a mindset within Putin's closest circle and I don't see the chance for anyone to actually break into that and say, hey, guys, maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe it's worth taking a chance. Because exactly, it would involve Russia taking a chance. And Russia already feels a threat. Russia feels vulnerable. If you're vulnerable, you're less likely to actually take a chance. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want, to, I want to swing down to Ukraine now, which has a new untested president. He's taking office in a couple of weeks. What do you think uh, the election of Zelensky means for the relation for Russia's relationship with uh, with Ukraine? Well, this is the, this is I mean obviously an interesting factor because you know we have absolutely no idea what Zelensky stands for or means really beyond the fact of his great vote winning characteristic, which was he was not Poroshenko. <laughs> um, so I mean, in in that respect, it, it, it's still all to play for. It's, it's interesting because actually, I mean, I felt that in his campaign when on those relatively rare occasions when he was talking policy you know, towards, particularly on, on the Donbass, he was saying many of the right things. I mean, for example, the fact that Ukraine needs to stop treating the people who are in the DNR and LNR as 
collaborators, but instead mm. as victims. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a crucial point. But in some ways, it almost becomes irrelevant because of, of Moscow's latest move. I mean, its decision to begin to issue passports right. and to do so um, in, in a particularly sort of favourable, easy way, actually issuing them in situ, um, in some ways has killed... I would say, any chance for real progress um, in Russia-Ukrainian relations. It looks, it looks like, a, like a test. I mean, so uh, not, not only the, well, Russia's decision to uh, expedite passport, um, f- passports for, for uh, Ukrainians living in uh, the breakaway republics, but also uh, Medvedev's decision or announcement that Russia would uh, halt exports of coal and oil beginning... Uh, June the first of June, to me those seem like tests for the for the new president, and it'll it'll be a, a question of how he stands up to those. But this is my I mean he I well again we wait and see. I don't claim to be an expert in Ukrainian politics, and as a sort of sideline, I think this is one of the encouraging things that we actually we really are seeing the end of post-Soviet studies. Mm. The idea that oh well, I'm a Russia hand, therefore I ought to be able to, be able to pontificate about Ukraine or Belarus or Tajikistan. <laughs> thank God is, is is finally going. But I think again, I mean, I, I I suspect that precisely because Zelensky is untested, precisely because he has popular support, but he does not have a political machine that's sort of been forged through multiple challenges. And, of course, we have the parliamentary elections coming up. I think for all of those reasons, Zelensky really can't do anything other than sound tough, even if there's nothing he can particularly do. And I think what this, is, what this says to me is that Russia has decided that, in fact, it doesn't matter who is the president, really, for the moment. That's not where they're going to get any traction. I suspect that what we will see is after the presidential elections, unless the results go very unfavorably from the Russian point of view, then maybe they will float some kind of a deal, but they probably won't float it with the Ukrainians. They'll float mm. it with the Europeans, hoping that a Europe, which is frankly thoroughly sick and tired of Ukraine and would love to see some kind of end to the conflict, not least because conflict resolution is pretty much in the European Union's DNA, um, if they can persuade the Europeans that there is some chance for a deal, and then they can hope that the Europeans can leverage Kiev, and also then the Europeans become the alibi mm. for Kiev to its own people, saying, look, we don't want to make a deal with the Russians, but the Europeans expect this, and therefore. So I think that's something that, that we'll still see. So in, in some ways, I think by their actions, I think the, the Russians have, are indicating that, in fact, they don't think there's any mileage in dealing with Kiev direct, whoever the president is. Right. Okay, before we sign off, I said I wanted to ask you about uh, Russian transnational crime, organized crime here. Um, I was wondering if you could give us sort of an, an, an update. What are organized crime groups in Russia up to these days? Well, let's talk transnationally for a moment. I mean, transnationally, the Russian crime, which is the most globalized of all the various sort of uh, criminal communities or whatever you want to call them, um, is doing what it always does, which is making money. I mean, it's interesting because after the 1990s, when there were clear attempts at essentially creating criminal empires, shall I say. They crashed out into Central Europe, into Nordic Nordic Europe and so forth. And they failed in every single case because basically that's not how mafias operate. Um, They have come back not as conquerors or would-be conquerors, but instead as merchant adventurers. And in some ways what the Russians have done is they have become the service and goods providers to the gangsters of the world. They go out and say, well, what do you need? What do you want? Do you need drugs? Do you need hacking? Do you need money laundries? We've got it. So in some ways, they they are wholesalers. You don't see them on the streets, but they are actually dealing with the gangs, whether we're talking about North America or whether we're talking about South Africa. So 
they're, they're busy making money and having fun off the globalized economy. In Russia, again, what we, what we have is an interesting case because there is a, a status quo that really has been set since Putin came to power. He essentially offered organized crime a social contract, which is you don't challenge the state. You don't do things that look like a challenge to the state, such as the overt violence on the streets that mm. was such a feature of the 1990s. And in return, we won't treat you as an enemy of the state. You know, the, the cops will still try and catch you, and there's still some you know, very honest and effective police, magistrates and judges trying to do their job um, in what are often very difficult circumstances. Um, but we won't actually unleash the full weight of the state. We, we, we're too busy sort of basically hunting someone who Facebook likes an anti-Putin cartoon or an anti-Russian Orthodox Church meme. That's where the real challenge is. Um, so what we have is, is a status quo that, that has been established now for almost 20 years, and it's beginning to creak at the seams. The, the old relationships, the turf borders, the, the, pick, the, the sort of pecking orders between gangs, um, they're all now looking increasingly out of date because you, know, you have new commodities, new flows. You also have a generation of 30, 40-something gangsters who back in the 1990s could rise far and fast, almost literally into dead men's shoes. Well, now in, in some ways the problem is that not enough kingpins are being killed. <laughs> so they're getting older. And so you have the 30 or 40-something-year-olds getting impatient. Mm. So I think for all these reasons, I think we can, we can see um, tensions within the underworld. Um, and I don't think we, we, unless there's some dramatic change in the political scene, I don't imagine, um, we're going to see a return to the 1990s. But I think what we are seeing is the potentiality for localized serious criminal conflict. Mm. And every time something that, that flashes up and makes it look as if that's possible then you see an interesting alliance between the state and many of the established gangs trying to damp it down quickly i mean when for example yet Hassan, um you know one of the most senior figures within organized crime here was assassinated a few years back you had an interesting alliance between slavic gangs chechens and the state to ensure that didn't lead to a georgian versus georgian turf war mm. that would have pulled in lot, lots of other gangs so in some ways again at home, it's business as usual, but an increasingly artificial one. Um, and you know, there's still, after all, what one third of all Afghan heroin comes through Russia. Russia has the highest heroin consumption per capita in the world. Um, the, the money launderers of Russia are still wide open. It just instead of maybe going direct into Europe, they bounce through other jurisdictions first. I mean, this is still, in some ways, um, a hub of not just national but global criminality. Mark, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you very much for coming into the studio and taking the time to chat with us. My pleasure. Thanks. And for our listeners in Moscow, Mark is going to be launching the Russian version of his book Vori at In Liberty this Sunday with Katya Shulman at 1 p.m. You can register for tickets at the In Liberty website. And to finish off, a young boy in the Siberian city of Omsk was filmed this week working selflessly and all on his own to uphold the greatness of Mother Russia. Что, братан, ты дороги засыпаешь? Дороги засыпаешь? Красава. Ты откуда? С этого дома? Дай я тебе руку пожму. In this clip, the young man can be seen waiting for cars to pass by the side of the road before running out with a plastic spade loaded with dirt to fill in three large potholes. After the video went viral, the mayor's office thanked him and said it would look forward to welcoming such an active citizen in the road and traffic management department in 10 to 15 years. So there you go, citizens. You can save yourselves and Russia by filling in one pothole at a time.
That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on North Korea, Mark Galliotti, and other oddities from across Russia. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Pyotr Sauer. And thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News.